Welcome to Freedom Fellowship. More information can be found online at cometofreedom.com. Grab your Bibles, open your hearts. You're going to be blessed today. We have a special guest teacher with us. We love the Word of God because we love the Lord and we love what He has to say to us. So please get your hearts open and ready to receive all that He would have. If you don't want to miss any future studies from Freedom here, please subscribe now. So let's begin with prayer. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for uh, this beautiful day you've given us and for, Lord God, our servicemen and women uh, whom we are celebrating on Memorial Day uh, tomorrow, Lord God. Uh, let us never forget their sacrifice uh, to give us the freedom uh, we experience here in this country, and Lord God, uh, let us live worthily, uh, not only for their sakes, um, but for yours, who has given us this life. We hold all of these things and today's message and your word up in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, as we have been going through 1 Timothy, we've seen a number of important aspects of the Christian faith and what it involves. For example, we talked about the goal of our faith in chapter 1, verse 5. Does anybody happen to remember what the goal of our faith is? Nice try, but no. According to 1 Timothy 1, verse 5, the goal of our instruction is love, from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. And I recall when uh, we preached that several weeks ago, I said, I think that every Christian ought to memorize 1 Timothy 1, verse 5, since there Paul is explicitly telling us this is the goal. And if you don't know what the goal is, you'll never hit it, all right? So... The goal is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. In, first, in chapter 1, verses 12 through 17, when we looked at the life of Paul, uh, we looked at the gospel of salvation by grace. The centrality of prayer was emphasized in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And we discussed the requirements for all Christians, particularly those who are in positions of formal leadership in the church, uh, to have a Christ-like character. We saw that uh, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. But what about false godliness? What is it? What's behind it? And how can we tell? Now, there are some people who may give every appearance of being Christians, but they may not, in fact, really be saved. Several years ago, when I was in Kenya, uh, I talked with a uh, pastor from Nairobi that I know, uh, and he told me something very interesting. His church is a Presbyterian church uh, in Nairobi. It was started about 30 years ago, and one of the founding members is uh, a well-known businessman in the town, and he's one of the elders in the church. Um, well, one Sunday, a few years ago, as the pastor was preparing his message, God spoke to him and told him, I want you to do an altar call this Sunday after the sermon. Now, as a Presbyterian, he never did altar calls, but since God told him to do it, he did it. 
And he was amazed to see one of the people coming forward was that founding elder. And afterwards, the elder told him, there was something you said in your sermon that made me realize I had never truly been born again. Um, so all of that is one reason why we need to be involved with other people so we can be aware of their situations and help them in their spiritual journeys. Because if we know people well, things will come out that will reveal maybe this person has never really been born again at all. On the other hand, some people seem to begin well and later fall away from the faith. Now that may happen for a variety of reasons. Paul mentioned that at the end of chapter one, where he said that some have not remained faithful uh, and have suffered the shipwreck uh, in regard to their faith as a result. And again, that's why we need to be involved with people's lives to help them stay on the right path. Staying faithful may be difficult. We need each other and we need to be there for each other. Then there is the issue that Jesus and the apostles warned about, namely false teachers in the church. In chapter one of 1 Timothy verses three and four, Paul talked about this very problem when he said, as I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus uh, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. Now, this is the issue that Paul is going to discuss in some detail in chapter four, verses one through seven A. In chapter four, verses one through seven A, Paul examines the nature of false teaching and false teachers, of false godliness and apostasy, and how to combat them. These verses really give us an entire theological summary of false godliness, including when apostasy will occur, who will fall away, the source of apostasy, the means used to cause apostasy, the effect on those who pay attention to false teaching, examples of false godliness, and the solution to apostasy and false godliness. So just packed in about seven verses, it is very rich. So let me read 1 Timothy 4, verses one through seven A. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Paul begins by saying, but the spirit <coughs> explicitly says that in the later times, <coughs> some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods, which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. 
In pointing out these things uh, to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished in the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. Well, these verses, <laughs> hmm. notice it seems to be the women that are laughing at his statement there. We'll talk about that, not you laughing, but we'll talk about that later on in this message. But these verses are telling us that false teaching that strikes at the heart of the gospel needs to be opposed and exposed. Now we're going to go through verses one through seven a phrase by phrase. Verses one and two will show us the background, causes, and effects of false teaching and false godliness. The beginning of verse 3 gives us two examples of false teaching and false godliness, and the end of verse 3 through verse 7a shows us how to deal with false teaching and false godliness. So first, the background causes and effects of false teaching and false godliness in verses 1 and 2. Well, verse 1 begins... But the Spirit explicitly says. Now Paul is here emphasizing the importance of what he's going to say by stating that it is the Holy Spirit who is saying this. Verse 1 then says, In later times some will fall away from the faith. Now some people think that the last days or later times is a period of time way off in the future shortly before Jesus comes again. That is not the case. Whenever the New Testament talks about later times or the last days or uses similar expressions, it is referring to the time that we are in now. Such expressions denote the entire period of time between Christ's first coming and his second coming. And we know that because on the day of Pentecost, when the disciples began speaking in other languages, the people said, they're drunk. Well, Peter got up and said, they're not drunk. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. In other words, it's too early to be drunk. But then he said, uh, let me tell you what is going on here. And so he explained what was happening uh, by quoting from the prophet Joel. And in Acts 2, verse 17, he began by quoting Joel, saying, It shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind. That was why the people were speaking in other languages. And so we know that the last days began at least as of the day of Pentecost. And in 1 John 2, verse 18, Two times, John says, this is the last hour. So we have been in the last days, indeed in the last hour, for the last 2,000 years. And that will continue until Christ comes again. Now Jude 17 and 18 expresses the thought similar to what Paul is saying here in 1 Timothy 4 verse 1. Jude reminds us that in the last time, there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. 
the entire period until Christ comes again will be characterized by some people coming to faith and by others making false professions of faith and falling away. Now the next phrase in verse one is paying attention to. In this phrase, Paul tells us who will fall away. Those who fall away are those who pay attention to false teachers and false teaching. Now at the beginning of the book, Paul admonished Timothy not to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. On the other hand, in chapter four, verse 13, he exhorts Timothy what he should pay attention to. There he says, until I come, give attention to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and teaching. And then in chapter four, verse 16, he adds, pay close attention to yourself and your teaching. Now, the Bible is our ultimate source of truth and the standard by which we are to live our lives. Consequently, in chapter four, verse 13, when he tells Timothy what he should pay attention to, he begins with scripture. He then talks about teaching. In other words, what we are to believe, since what we believe will determine how we live. His reference to paying attention to yourself in chapter four, verse 16, indicates that we need to regularly assess our entire lives, our thoughts, our words, our deeds, our emotions, our desires, our loves, our hates, etc., in light of the gospel and the Bible. And we need to change and correct those aspects of our lives that do not correspond to the gospel and to the word of God. Now verse one concludes by speaking of deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. Here, Paul tells us the ultimate source of false teaching that will lead people astray. That ultimate source is deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. Now, although human beings are the writers and speakers of false doctrines, behind the human mouthpieces are spirits and demons. Now, this is one manifestation of the fact that behind what we can see, there exists a great spiritual world, including great spiritual warfare. Now, most of the time, we are completely unaware of this, but what we do here on earth has important spiritual implications. For example, Job never knew why all the evil things were happening to him and his family. It was not because he had sinned as his friends thought. It was, in fact, because he was righteous. What happened to him was the result of a wager between Satan and God. Now, in Daniel 10, there was conflict between uh, Satan and Michael the archangel because of what Daniel had been praying about. The point 
is that there is far more going on in the heavenly and spiritual realm concerning what we teach and believe and how we live than we will ever be able to perceive in this body here on earth. Now, we need to understand that here in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul is not attacking every error, every misunderstanding, or every wrong opinion that people may have, or that they may teach. Rather, Paul is dealing with any teaching that strikes at the heart of the gospel. What he's doing is distinguishing between what I call primary things, secondary things, and man-made things. The primary things are those that the Bible talks about again and again and are clear. These are the things that go to the heart of our faith and the gospel. They include such things as the fact that the Bible is the word of God. There is only one God and he is Trinity. Jesus is fully God and fully man. We are sinners and cannot save ourselves. We are only saved by God's grace through our faith in Jesus Christ and we are all called to live lives of love. Now every Orthodox Christian should believe those things. Those are the primary things that go to the heart of our faith and, faith, and they have eternal implications for us. Now secondary matters are things that the Bible talks about but not in great detail and is, can be rather a- ambiguous. For example, what is the proper form of church government? There are three basic forms of church government. They all began in the first century and they all continue to exist today. They are the Episcopal form of government, the Presbyterian form of government, and the Congregational form of government. Now, the Bible makes various statements that each wing of the church that has a particular form of government can point to, uh, but it is not entirely clear. Uh, Also, should we baptize children uh, or infants or only professing believers? There are certain statements uh, in uh, the Bible that people who practice both forms of baptism can point to. What is the mode of baptism? Is it immersion or sprinkling? Again, there are various statements that people who do both modes of baptism can point to. Uh, Or pick an issue near and dear to many of our hearts, the issue of eschatology. Uh, As you may or may not know, I have written a book called Biblical Eschatology. It's now in its second edition. Uh, It's published by Whipfenstock a few years ago. It's probably the most comprehensive book on the subject of eschatology. And yet, even though that subject is near and dear to my heart and to many of our hearts, the fact of the matter is there are different views and it, it does not go to our salvation. These are secondary matters. They are important. I think we need to think about them and come to reasoned decisions on what we believe on all of these matters, but the fact is there are good, godly people in different camps, in different denominations, who have different views on these matters, and we should not turn secondary matters into primary matters. And then there are what I call man-made things. For example, 
what is the order of a church service on Sunday? The Bible doesn't say, okay? And so different churches have a different order of service. Uh, should the person who is up preaching or teaching wear a suit like I'm doing now or a robe like, like uh, some uh, pastors do or casual clothes? Bible doesn't say anything about that. But again, so often we tend to elevate secondary or even man-made matters to the primary things. What Paul is emphasizing here in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4 concerning false teaching and false godliness is major on the majors. That is the thing that if we go wrong, that implicates our salvation. Um, now here in 1 Timothy, Paul is telling us that Spirits and demons are behind the false teaching that goes to the heart of the gospel, namely to the primary matters. We may not realize it, but we are engaged in a great cosmic battle. It is played out here on earth among people. But unseen spiritual forces, angels and demons, are part of this battle. And that is why what we teach, what we believe, and how we live are far more important than we realize. Now, verse two begins, by means of the hypocrisy of liars. Here, Paul is telling us the means that lead people to fall away. It's the hypocrisy of liars. In John four, verse 88, Jesus called Satan the father of lies. Now the prepositional phrase by means of here in verse two indicates that these false teachers are the instruments used to mislead those of the faith. Now this is one reason why Jesus was so harsh with the Pharisees and the scribes. For example, in Mark seven verse six, Jesus said, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. He was harsh regarding hypocrites because he knew both the ultimate source of spiritual hypocrisy and the great everlasting harm that hypocrisy and falsehood can bring. Now, this is also why we need to judge teachers by what they say and by how they live. Now, just as Satan himself can present himself as an angel of light, according to 2 Corinthians 11, verse 4, false teachers typically present themselves as great men of God. Now, they may claim to do and may in fact even do great signs and wonders. They may take in millions of dollars on television, but such men do not have a humble lifestyle like Jesus had, but typically live to enrich themselves. They are hypocrites who do not live like Jesus do not live like the apostles, and do not live like most Christians have lived throughout history. 
Their hypocrisy is known to the Lord and should be known by us. Their use of Jesus' name does not fool Jesus and should not fool us. Now, this is a problem that has always been present in the church from the first century until today. Now, an early church manual called the Didache was written between about the years 70 and 110, and it was written to advise church leaders. It stresses the importance of evaluating a person's motive and lifestyle in order to discern whether or not that person is a false prophet or apostle. It says this, and I'm reading from the uh, Didache, which says, so, uh, concerning apostles and prophets, deal with them as follows in accordance with the rule of the gospel. Let every apostle who comes to you be welcomed as if he were the Lord, but he is not to stay for more than one day unless there is a need, in which case he may stay another. But if he stays three days, he's a false prophet. And when the apostle leaves, he is to take nothing except bread until he finds his next night's lodging. But if he asks for money, he is a false prophet. I wonder what they would think of many of the TV preachers we see today. Um, now, the, uh, uh, all right, verse two concludes by saying the words, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Now this clause describes the effect of paying attention to false teaching and false teachers. Their own consciences have been seared, in other words, burned and scarred, as if burned with a hot iron, just like cattle are branded with a branding iron. Now this has three related effects. First, their consciences are affected so that they now call falsehood truth and no longer have any shame in using the name of Jesus to enrich themselves and lead people astray. Second, in 1 Timothy 1 verse 5, we saw that the goal of our faith is love from a good conscience. But paying attention to false teaching results in a person's conscience being seared. That means it is no longer a good conscience. Consequently, such a person can no longer achieve the goal of our faith, which is love from a good conscience. Now, in chapter three of 1 Timothy verse nine, when he's discussing the requirements to be a deacon, Paul talked about holding to the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. This should warn us not to pay attention to false teaching because that will disqualify us from serving as a leader in the church because our conscience will no longer be clear. And third, even more important, the branding mark shows who owns the person. African scholar Samuel Ngewa says, these teachers carry Satan's brand on their conscience, indicating that they belong to someone other 
than the God whom believers belong to. So this is serious business. What we have seen so far shows how deep and important this issue of true versus false teaching and belief can be. And this leads us to verse three, which gives us two examples of false teaching and false godliness. Verse three, the two examples that verse three gives are men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods. Now, those people who forbid others to marry may approach the issue sounding like angels of light. In other words, you'd like to be more like Jesus, wouldn't you? Well, Jesus was not married. So if you want to be really spiritual like him, you must not get married either. Now, although such words, when put like that, sound spiritual, they overlook the fact that God is the one who created marriage. Marriage is a picture of the relationship between Christ and his church, according to Ephesians chapter five. And although Paul was single, and he thought it better that people remain single, he recognized that marriage is a gift from God. And in fact, in 1 Timothy 5, verse 14, he advocates that younger women get married and raise families. Now the issue of eating, especially meat that had been sacrificed to idols and drinking wine, were important issues affecting the early church and are still important issues in many parts of the world today. Now the issue of what we eat goes back to the law of Moses. However, Christ freed Christians from the Old Testament law. In Mark 7, Jesus declared all foods to be clean. That means you can eat anything you want to, and it's perfectly okay. You don't have to if you don't like something, but we're not bound by the Old Testament food laws anymore. Now, Paul talks about this issue in some detail uh, in Romans 14 and in 1 Corinthians 8. And there, he essentially said, you can eat and drink anything you want to. If, however, for some reason, your conscience bothers you about eating or drinking something, or if your eating or drinking something would stumble somebody else, then don't do it. In other words, you have the right to do it, but other people are more important. So if exercising your right will stumble a weaker brother or sister, then give up your right while you are around them. Now, on their face, marrying and abstaining from certain foods or other similar practices may seem relatively unimportant. One might think that Paul is overreacting when he calls such things the doctrines of demons. Paul is not overreacting. He knows that the principle behind these examples, when considered deeply enough, strike at the heart of Christianity, at the heart of the gospel, and at the heart of what Christ has done. Now, why is that? 
The principle behind the commands, you cannot get married and you cannot eat certain foods, is fundamentally at odds with Christ uh, and what he has done for at least two reasons. First, such man-made commands deny the sufficiency of the work of Christ to save and sanctify people. What Paul is talking about is not an individual's decision uh, to remain single or to not eat or drink certain things. Instead, he's talking about man-made rules or commands by other people that in effect tell you if you want to be saved or if you want to become spiritual and holy, then you cannot get married or eat uh, or drink certain things. Now, throughout the history of the church, we have seen similar types of commands in various churches and at various times and places. For example, you can't play cards. You can't go to the movies. You can't drink alcohol. You can't wear certain clothes. You can't go to certain places. Uh, you can't associate with certain kinds of people. And on Sundays, you can't do anything other than go to church and read the Bible. Now, in the early church, certain people were saying that in addition to Christ, uh, you had to get circumcised and obey the Mosaic food laws. Now, all such rules deny the sufficiency of Christ to alone save and sanctify us. All such rules are not part of the new covenant. They amount to saying that faith in Christ and obedience to him and his word is not good enough. Instead, to such faith and obedience, you have to add man's own rules. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We have been freed from the old law. We are now subject to the law of Christ. And the law of Christ is the teaching of Jesus and the New Testament writers. Jesus said, if we abide or continue in his word, not the man-made commands of false teachers, then we will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Amen, indeed. Now, such man-made commands also are contrary to what Christ has done because they create two distinct classes of Christians, the holy ones who follow the man-made rules and the lower common ones who do not. Now, according to Ephesians chapter 2, Christ came to create one new man in him, not two. All those who are his disciples are his disciples equally. To hold that there are two classes of Christians, first-class Christians and second-class Christians, based on man-made rules not found in the Bible, strikes directly at what Christ has done. It pits one type of Christian against another and amounts to saying that oneness in Christ is not good enough. Now, Paul dealt with this same type of problem in Galatians 2, verses 11 through 14. 
In Galatians, the issue was whether Jewish believers could eat with uncircumcised Gentile believers. Now in Acts chapter 10, Peter had been shown that God does not show partiality between Jews and Gentiles. And after that, Peter began eating with Gentiles. But Peter later withdrew himself and stopped eating with them. Now he may have stopped eating with Gentiles for good motives. In other words, perhaps not to offend certain Jews or even to win certain Jews to Christ. But Paul knew that such a position was deadly to the gospel. Consequently, Paul confronted Peter publicly, he called him a hypocrite, and in Galatians 2 verse 14, he said that Peter was not being straightforward about the truth of the gospel. You see, ultimately, it is the gospel that is at stake here. Peter was denying the very gospel he preached by what he was doing in his private life. He was denying Gentiles complete acceptance by not eating with them because they were Gentiles. Now the issue for us may not be who we eat with. The false teaching and false godliness Paul is uh, dealing uh, with here strike at the heart of the gospel because they deny the exclusive sufficiency of Jesus and his death and they deny the radical equality that the gospel gives people. Um, and again, the same type of issue arises in any kind of context whenever either individual Christians or a church denies somebody membership, positions of leadership, fellowship, or full equality because of tribal, ethnic, socioeconomic, or other similar reasons. Again, this goes to the heart of the gospel, and that is the big point that Paul is talking about throughout these first seven verses in chapter four. Now, if some teacher is saying that Christians should not eat or drink certain things, or not associate with certain people, or have to wear certain kind of clothes, or are not allowed to do certain things, or are not allowed to go certain places, we need to ask such questions as, why? Where does that command, where are that command found in the law of Christ? What's the reason you are demanding this? Why is this necessary? And what effect does it supposedly have on my spiritual state if I do it or if I choose not to do it? And again, there is not necessarily one bright line answer to these questions. Different answers, even opposite answers, might equally be correct depending on the specific circumstances. For example, Paul circumcised Timothy so that he would have ready access to the synagogues. Uh, but on the other hand, he refused to have Titus circumcised precisely because the demand for his circumcision was made in the context that jeopardized the gospel. In other words, if somebody argues, uh, as was the case 
in Galatians regarding Titus that a Gentile must be circumcised in order to be a true Christian, Paul absolutely forbids it because that would annihilate the exclusive sufficiency of Christ. But if no one is making that sort of demand, Paul was happy uh, to circumcise a believer if it would advance the interests of the gospel. Now similarly, as we saw in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8, Paul said we can eat anything we want, even if it has been sacrificed to idols. But if our eating meat that has been sacrificed to idols causes a weaker believer to stumble in his or her faith, then Paul said, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. We need to know why we are doing what we are doing, and we need to know the gospel well so that we do not shackle people under man-made laws of our own. Now, the last part of verse 3 through verse 7a, Paul concludes his discussion of this by showing how to deal with false teaching and false godliness. Now, after describing how certain teachers were forbidding marriage and saying that you should not eat certain foods, verses 3 through 5 then say that God created these things to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Now here, Paul is giving us the first part of his solution to the problem of false teaching, namely, know the word of God. Test everything by means of the word. Now Christ is truth and his word is truth. The Bible is the standard by which we should evaluate people's teachings. A true preacher, teacher, or messenger of God will never contradict God's written word. Now if we keep his word and walk closely with God, the Holy Spirit will guide us into the truth. We should therefore evaluate any teaching and any proposed rule for how we are to live by means of the Bible and the enlightenment that the Holy Spirit gives us through prayer. And this shows us the absolute necessity of having a good working knowledge of the word. And it also gives us another reason why prayer out of a holy life, as we saw in chapter two, is so important. Verse six then says, in pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. Now this is the second part of Paul's solution to the problem of false teaching, namely, teach the word of God. Expose false godliness by means of the word. It is the responsibility of those who are leading the church 
to know the word of God and to teach it. Now, knowing the difference between the true and the false has eternal implications for people. Since the stakes are so high, Paul frequently reiterates the importance of false, uh, of exposing false teaching from the word, uh, and he, he emphasized, emphasizes teaching in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, 3, 4, and 6. Proclaiming the true and exposing the false aids us as well as others. Paul says that as we do this, we will be constantly nourished on the words of faith and of sound doctrine which you have been following. Now this highlights the importance of living what we teach. The words of faith will only nourish us if we have been following them. In other words, paying careful attention to them and conforming our own life uh, according to the word of God. That will cause us to grow in our faith. However, if we have not been living what we've been saying, then we are hypocrites. And that is one of the marks of a false teacher. In that case, the word of God will condemn us rather than nourish us. Now this applies to all Christians because we are all examples of Christ to everyone we meet. Now being a good servant of Christ Jesus also emphasizes our attitude and manner of life, how important they are. Many leaders of churches like to think of themselves as great men of God who are superior to those down in their congregations. However, in verse six, Paul calls Timothy a servant of Christ Jesus. Now, if pastors, elders, overseers, and bishops do not realize that they are first servants, servants of Christ and servants of Christ's people, then they will not be properly representing Christ and will not be properly fulfilling their office. But again, the same thing applies to every Christian, whether or not we are in positions of formal leadership in the church. And the reason is because Christ said, the greatest among you will be your servant. As with so many other things, uh, it comes down to loving God and loving others. One does not serve others or demonstrate love by having an attitude of superiority over other people. Christ loves his people, and he wants us to be his instruments to show them how much he loves them. Now, if we truly love our neighbor as ourselves, then we will have the same concern and expend the same effort, energy, and expense to ensure our neighbor's well-being as we do for our own. Christ did, and he calls us to do the same. Now, verse 7a summarizes everything Paul has been talking about by saying, in, um, but have nothing to do 
with the worldly fables fit only for old women. In other words, only gullible and foolish people pay attention to them. However, if we are not properly taught, if we are not men and women of the word who study it, understand it, take it deeply into us, and then live it out, we will be prey for the false prophets who come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves, as Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 15. Um, and, you know, he says, has, have nothing to do with it, uh, nothing to do with the false. And the reason is, even a little amount of poison or filth is enough to spoil a large container of otherwise pure or clean water. So if there are even a few people whose doctrine will pollute the church, every effort must be made to correct them. Um, and again, when he talked about old fables fit only for old women, you see, he's, he's mocking these people um, because in that society, most women had, did not have the benefit of an education. Um, and so he's basically saying, you see, if you pay attention to the false, you're being just a gullible uh, person and you're being foolish. So he's giving us a good reason why we don't pay attention, but then he's mocking those who might fall prey. We should, in our churches, we should not only study the word, be, but be taught well enough so that we are not prey to fall and become foolish and gullible. So let me conclude by saying this. In 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 7a, these verses give us a complete theological summary of false teaching and false godliness. They tell us that, uh, that false teaching and false godliness are taking place now. They describe who falls away, what is behind false teaching, the means false teachers use, and the effects of false teaching. This passage gives us examples of false teaching and false godliness and concludes by telling us how to deal with false teaching and false teachers. False teaching that strikes at the heart of the gospel needs to be opposed and exposed. Now this passage is showing us how important it is to have true teaching and a life of true godliness. That means we all need to be men and women of the word. We need to be like the Bereans in Acts 17, verse 11, who, quote, examined the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so, end quote. Now, since they did that with respect to the teaching of the Apostle Paul himself, we need to do that with every teaching we read or hear including what I am saying to you now, since no one of the status of the Apostle Paul is teaching today. Now this passage is also pulling back the curtain, so to say, and showing us that spiritual forces, spirits, angels, and demons are behind the scenes and are actively involved in the ministry, 
the teaching and the lives of the people in the church. Our lives, what we teach, what we believe, and how we live are more profound and far-reaching than we can perceive with our five senses or with our mind. In light of that, let us be particularly faithful to do what Jude counseled, namely, contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Let me pray with you. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Thank you for your word. Lord God, in, in these six and a half verses, you have given us a real summary of false teaching, false godliness, what is behind it, and how to combat it. Lord God, help us look at what is going on in the church to keep those in the church on the right path. And if we see somebody straying, Lord God, give us the words, give us the character, and give us the heart to help bring them back because this is a matter of everlasting life or death. You have entrusted to us these things of such importance, and you've given us the ability to do it for you, to help the church and help your people. So Lord God, renew our strength, renew our minds, and send us out. Let us be good ambassadors for you so that people, when they see us and when they hear us, they will see and hear something of you in us. We ask all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for studying the Word of God with us today. If you were blessed by the teaching of it, would you please make sure to share it, that others too may be blessed and grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Until next time, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.